You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Katie Putz, coming to you from Maryland. Hey, Katie. Good to be back with you. How are you doing? Doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, and I'm especially uh, glad that on our second podcast for 2023, we're joined by a familiar voice uh, on the show. Uh, I'm very pleased, of course, to welcome back Sebastian Strangio, The Diplomats Southeast Asia editor. Uh, Sebastian, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. How are you guys doing? Doing quite well. Uh, and Sebastian, of course, uh, I'm particularly pleased to have you on because we got a few queries from our listeners to uh, talk a little bit about what's been happening over the last few weeks in Vietnam, uh, where we've seen a very interesting start to the year politically uh, with a fairly remarkable um, leadership shuffle. Uh, some are calling it a purge. Uh, first two deputy prime ministers spreading to the president. Um, tell us a little bit about what exactly has happened in Vietnam and, and why we're seeing this at the moment. What does this, what does this tell us about the nature of politics at the highest levels of the Vietnamese state and the communist party of Vietnam's broader approach to internal affairs in this moment? What we're seeing right now, I think is the culmination of a nearly decade long anti-corruption, I guess you would say uh, campaign um, that has been probably the signature policy of the general secretary of the Communist Party of Vietnam, Nguyen Phu Jong. Jong is um, now in his third term. He's been um, in the position for more than a decade now. Um, and since the sort of middle of the 2010s, he sort of he, he, he set his sights on ridding the Communist Party of Vietnam of, of corruption. This has become a huge issue as Vietnam's economy has grown. And we've seen, you know, uh, you know, this intensify gradually. Um, and reach, uh, you know, incandescent levels over the course of 2022. Um, I think one of the problems is that despite all this anti-corruption efforts, there's still been a huge amount of corruption scandals that have been incredibly embarrassing to the to the party. Um, two particular ones, which are connected to the recent expulsions um, and resignations, were uh, related to the country's COVID-19 effort. One of them had to do with, um, you know, scandal involving overpriced test kits. For COVID-19 and another one had to do with essentially bribing Vietnamese citizens um, to gain seats on repatriation flights at the height of the pandemic. Um, and both of these scandals have implicated um, not just the two deputy prime ministers and the president, which you mentioned before, but also a host of senior officials in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and senior government and party officials, um, <clears throat> you know, across the spectrum. Um, and so, you know, what I think what we're really seeing now is um, a reassertion of the prerogative of the Communist Party itself as uh, you know, over the government. Um, that seems to be the most um, uh, means seems to make the most sense that, you know, you've got these these officials that have done quite well, you know, um, including the former foreign minister, Pham Binh Minh, um, and of course, the president, Nguyen Xuan Phuc. Uh, Fook, of course, was also prime minister for five years to 2021. Um, you know, both of these officials were very visible internationally and they they, they had a good reputation as, uh, you know, as, as, as government officials, as, as civil servants um, who represented Vietnam on the global stage. But I think what we're seeing is, you know, a because of the corruption, because of all these issues that have challenged the moral and political legitimacy of the Vietnamese Communist Party, we've seen the party itself sort of reassert its control and we've seen sort of... Um, the rising prominence of the, you know, the security sort of apparatus within the party. Um, 
you know, which I think is, you know, seeking to re reestablish, um, you know, a, a sort of a norm of good behavior, I suppose, um, and, and to take back power from these government officials, which they view as having um, sort of, you know, corrupted um, the image of the party in the eyes of the Vietnamese people. Um, so, you know, we often discuss Vietnam in geopolitical terms as kind of sandwiched between China and the U.S., and there's a lot of sort of uh, criminology uh, in, in reading of the, the movements for that geopolitical angle. So, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask kind of an obvious question for this podcast is, you know, is there a geopolitical dimension to this leadership change, or is this really strictly a, a domestic issue and sort of has more to do with the internal dynamics of the party and the state and the relationship with the people um, than than any external factors. It's not likely to have much of an impact on Vietnam's external relations, I think, for two reasons. One is that, you know, Vietnam's foreign policy over the past, you know, several really since normalization with China in the early 90s has been pretty consistent. Um, I think it's and it's conditioned very strongly by uh, proximity to China and the need, you know, the centrality that China, um, the central role that China plays in Vietnamese foreign policy. So I think, you know, the geographic proximity of China is it imposes one great restraint. It, it narrows the band of um, potential options for the Vietnamese government um, in terms of its international alignments. Um, of, obviously, in the 1980s, it allied against China with the Soviet Union, and it and it was, you know. Um, basically endured a decade plus of, of a state of war essentially with China mm -hmm. and that, that helped to, you know, hobbled its economic recovery from the war and so forth and so on and so forth. Um, and so I think that, you know, that will ensure a certain amount of continuity. Um, the second factor has to do with how foreign policy is made in Vietnam, which is, you know, the Politburo makes decisions, sets the country's foreign policy as a collective. Individuals within the Politburo can be more or less influential in that process. But this is not something that relies on any single individual. Um, and there's no indication that we're, we're likely to see a significant shift in Vietnam's foreign policy, um, you know, over the months to come. Uh, there is a tendency in the West to sort of identify a, you know, Western leaning faction and a pro-China faction within the within the Communist Party. But I think that's that's vastly oversimplistic. You, you have the existence of rivalries, in fact, I suppose you might call them factions within the CPV, but they're very, um, they reflect a lot of different other things, including uh, patronage networks, they reflect um, regions of origin within Vietnam, you know, regional power bases within the country, um, and personal loyalties of various sorts. Obviously, foreign policy and views of engagement with the West and exactly the pace at which that should proceed is part of that, but it's a relatively small part, I think. And there's no evidence that this recent um, orientation, uh, you know, or, or rather um, move against, um, you know, all of these individuals within the party and government was motivated by foreign policy. Um, I think it is probably worth saying, though, that while Vietnam's foreign policy will remain consistent, there is the likelihood that, you know, the loss of so many officials from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, including Min, who was, you know, very, you know, he served for a decade as Vietnam's foreign minister and was, you know, involved on the Politburo uh, with setting foreign policy and dealing with external relations, um, the loss of these officials could lead to a sort of human resources shortfall and, and the, the, you know, loss of talent. Um, and so the implementation of Vietnam's foreign policy and the balancing act that it attempts could be complicated um, and made more difficult by this. But um, 
you know, we'll have to wait and see. So actually, just following up on that point, uh, Sebastian, a related question I have is actually about Vietnam's economic role in Asia, right? Vietnam uh, has been somewhat rare in maintaining its economic dynamism, uh, you know, the, the economic dynamism it exhibited pre-COVID through the first year of COVID and even through last year when Vietnam grew at about 8%. Uh, and, and, and of course, you know, I don't want to oversimplify things, but one of the factors that I think has led to confidence among investors, co- country uh, companies setting up manufacturing plants in Vietnam uh, is the relatively predictable politics and the relatively predictable and stable leadership. If you had to sort of maybe project forward into, you know, the next coming, the next few months and maybe longer term, uh, depending on how long this sort of high level party tumult lasts, do you think this political shuffle that's remarkable by 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 everything I guess we've seen over uh, from Vietnamese politics over the last couple of decades? Do you think that'll have sort of any blowback or consequences for how Vietnam is perceived economically uh, in the region uh, and even um, globally? Um, I mean, like you say, it depends on how far this all goes. But I do think that um, the impact is probably likely to be fairly minimal. I, I mean. I'm not an economist, and there are potentially other issues with the Vietnamese economy that could um, weigh into this equation. Um, but if we're talking purely about the, the question of political instability, you know, I, I think in some ways, you know, this shows the strength of the Communist Party, um, and and it sort of indicates a, you know, um, a strengthening of, of of the political controls. Now, what one potential impact that has been discussed is the chilling effect that the anti-corruption campaign has actually had on lower levels of Vietnamese bureaucracy, where people are scared to make any decisions at all because of um, the, the fear of getting, you know, trapped, um, you know, and, and prosecuted for something. Um, and, you know, corruption has probably, you know, helped to grease Vietnam's economic, uh, you know, development over the last couple of decades. You know, this is, as, as some scholars have argued, it has done in the case of China, that corruption is not has worked sort of in favor of economic growth to a certain extent during early phases of development. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing, you know, uh, Reuters, I think, did a, you know, wrote an interesting report on this about the impacts that um, the anti-corruption campaign is having on, on the functioning of the Vietnamese state. Um, and so that could potentially be an issue. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of what's driving positive Western perceptions of Vietnam, you know, to bring it back to geopolitics is, that Vietnam is offers a lot of the things that once made China attractive as a as a as a destination for foreign investment, a fairly skilled workforce, but still uh, you know low cost workforce, um, and the fact that there are now geopolitical concerns about investment in China for some firms in the West, Vietnam has emerged as a very attractive alternative, and I don't see that um, the attraction fading anytime soon. Now it could if things get uh, you know if instability becomes the norm in Vietnamese politics, then that could flow through to the economy. But I don't think we're quite at that stage yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wanted to sort of call back to something you said uh, in the first sort of set of remarks that you made about the motivation of the, the party behind this leadership purge. You know, how is this being perceived by people in Vietnam? You know, if the, if the idea behind this is... is uh, the party demonstrating to, to the public that we do take this anti-corruption drive seriously. Um, how has this been perceived both within Vietnam, Vietnam um, by, by uh, citizens? And then maybe also how is this being perceived by neighboring countries uh, would be something interesting worth hearing. 
it's a hard question to answer because I'm not, um, I don't really have my finger on the pulse of, of public opinion in Vietnam. Um, but from what I've heard from other analysts who have done work on this, that, mm -hmm. you know, it's a fair, it's been a fairly a broadly popular thing. I mean, I think public distaste for the, you know, the high living of senior government and party officials um, has been rising for, for many years now. Mm -hmm. um, and, especially the revelations that that government officials were taking advantage of the pandemic to enrich themselves and line their own nests, I think has been, you know, really threatens to undermine the, not just the, the yeah, the, the political legitimacy of the Communist Party, but it's moral legitimacy, um, you know, as sort of a, you know, yeah, a sort of a bastion of ethical, you know, the, the eth you know, the sort of Confucian uh, values, I suppose, um, and, you know, this is something that I think a lot of ordinary people are probably happy to see. Now, you know, anyone who's informed about Vietnamese politics would also be aware that, you know, that this is, you know, always to a certain extent ex selective. I mean, mm -hmm. the internal, uh, the public security minister um, is one of the favorites of, uh, candidates to take um, to take over the presidential, the president's role um, following Fuchs' resignation. Um, Tolam. Um, and he, you know, is somebody who was caught on video last year um, dining on a gold, gold encrusted steak at a London restaurant. Um, and, you know, a, a video that went viral on Vietnamese social media and, and you know, created a lot of a stir. Um, but he has not yet fallen victim to the anti-corruption um, movement. So I think there's probably an awareness amongst the people that this is all politically filtered and that there are individuals that are still probably beyond the reach mm -hmm. of this campaign. Um but I think broadly, you know, people were probably pretty satisfied to see some of these officials brought low. Um, as for neighboring countries, I don't, you know, it's hard to say um, how this would be viewed. I think um, they probably just, it's mostly viewed in, in the halls of government in Southeast Asian countries as, as an internal Vietnamese affair that, you know, um, I think that a lot of people would probably, you know, uh, in, in some other governments would probably admire the ability of the Communist Party to to mount a purge on this scale and to, to take down such senior officials. If you look mm -hmm. at a, countries like, you know, the Philippines or Indonesia, which are so decentralized and where corruption is, you know, rife at, you know, uh, at, at all levels of government, um, there'd probably be, you know, a frustration on the part of some technocrats that they, they, they don't have the sort of cohesive top-down political control necessary to, to attempt something like this. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, um, you know, it is, it is kind of a remarkable, by Southeast Asian standards, it is, you know, quite an unusual thing and i think you really do need a, a you know a very hierarchically organized party state in order to attempt something like this and even in the vietnamese case you know there's indication that it's you know it, it's not really working in many ways you know the fact that it's been dragging on for so many years and that there's still more corruption scandals emerging um <clears throat> you know you know just points to the challenge of doing this well sebastian i was going to ask you a bit about tolan but you already addressed that in your answer to to uh, Katie's question, uh, I mean, just just very quickly on Tolam sort of being the Minister of Public Security and speculated to be for, first in line for the presidency, as many commentators suggest. Do you think that his sort of bureaucratic background as sort of Minister of Public Security could lead to this purge sort of becoming amplified? Tolam sort of taking on some of his perceived rivals or opponents. Is there a concern there over the long term? It's hard to say, you know, it's very opaque, um, but I think it does indicate a, you know, the, the prominence of the public security ministry now 
within the new constellations of power in Vietnam. Um, the prime minister as well, the current prime minister, um, Pham Minh Ching, he is also um, a denizen, as far as I'm aware, of the of the public security ministry. And so I think we're seeing, you know, this is sort of like, it almost seems like the attack dog of the, of the Communist Party is the, is, is the controls the organs of the state, uh, the organs of state security and is able to, you know, and so if, if that involves overlooking some, you know, some, uh, you know, issues with some of the officials in this ministry, such as Tolam, who, you know, embarrassed the party <laughs> going out and um, spending a thousand dollars on a stake, um, uh, you know, that might, that might be sort of the price of it. But um, from, from what I've, um, what I understand, you know, we're likely to see increased prominence of officials from the security forces, um, these organs of state, um, once this leadership reshuffle, this purge has played out. Great. Well, uh, Katie, did you have any final questions? Uh, nope. Just wanted to say thank you very much for joining us, uh, Sebastian. Uh, it's always nice to see you and hear from you. Likewise. <laughs> you yeah. too, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot. This was fun. Absolutely. It's always fun to uh, talk Southeast Asia with you, Sebastian. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, for listeners, make sure you subscribe so you can, of course, keep up with future episodes of the podcast. Uh, like I said, this podcast was a result of some listener demand. So as always, we do take that into account. So don't feel like you can't reach out to either me or Katie to put suggestions for episodes. Um, and if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. You can do that anywhere you get your podcast. We really appreciate it. And we do take that uh, feedback seriously. Thanks for listening. And Katie and I will be back soon with more.